Welcome to the latest episode of Aerospace Radio Station Extended. Japan began its deep space program in 1985 when it sent two spacecraft into the tail of Halley's Comet. Japan followed that by becoming the third country to reach the moon um, with uh, two spacecraft there in 1990 on the same mission, sending a spacecraft to Mars, although it was unsuccessful several years later, and also sending a spacecraft Akasuki to Venus. Your aerospace radio station. Hello there, I'm Peter Johnson and welcome to the latest episode of Aerospace Radio Station Extended. With the recent lunar activity by JAXA, the Japanese space organization, we felt we needed to find out a bit more about Japan in space, its history, and its evolution to a world-leading aerospace organization. So we had to reach back to Brian Harvey, who you may remember helped along a similar journey covering the Chinese space industry in episode 165. It's almost a year to the day since we last spoke. So, Brian, welcome back to Extended. Thank you for inviting me. It's fabulous to have you back. But Brian, this is a fascinating one, actually, given recent events, of course, and the slim uh, lander, uh, lunar lander. So it's very timely. But where can the origins of the Japanese space program be traced back to? The Japanese space program goes back to the 1920s when there were rocket enthusiasts in many different parts of the world in Britain, in Germany, in France, in the United States, in uh, what was then the Soviet Union, and Japan shared in this craze. And one of those who uh, informed himself about that was Eiichi Iwaya, who joined the Navy and was sent off to be um, a delegate to the Japanese embassy in Berlin during the right. Second World War. He heard of how the Germans were designing rocket fighters like the Messerschmitt 163. He appreciated the significance of this. He asked that an ocean-going submarine be sent all the way from Japan to Lorient in France to pick up the designs of the German rocket effort, both fighters and indeed the A4 V2 rocket. He got on board. It sailed back to Singapore. He, luckily for him, got off with the blueprints in Sing Singapore and flew back to Japan. Unfortunately for Japan, the submarine itself was sunk off Taiwan with the actual German rocketry hardware. But this gave the Japanese enough to reverse engineer, as it were, the German rocket designs from World War II. The Americans at that time made the mistake, I think, of underestimate, 
underestimating Japan's progress. They didn't even try to round up the equivalence of Werner von Braun in post-war Japan. Um, they didn't even look for the hardware at all and seemed somewhat surprised when in the 1950s, Japan resumed its rocketry work. So the history goes back to the 20s, 30s, 40s and 50s. Right. OK. Um, and obviously the end of the war was a turning point in Asian politics completely. Uh, and Japan was and its industrial um, um, capabilities were pretty much destroyed. How did how was that resurrected post post war? What happened next? I think there were two things. First of all, Japan's aviation industry, even in the 20s and 30s, was quite advanced. Japan was one of only two countries in the 20s to have aviation universities. Um, so Japan, I think, was much further along than, uh, should we say, the Western powers could have imagined it to be. And many of the people there who, after the war, were unemployed, and I, I want to come now to the chief designer of the Japanese space program, Hideo Itokawa. He was getting odd jobs in hospitals and that kind of thing, as were many of his colleagues, until in the mid-1950s, things began to change. First of all, the Japanese embraced the American idea that um, Japan should be a pacifist nation, uh, no longer a, a military threat, and the Japanese took that very much to heart and set down a thing called the Yoshida Doctrine after the Prime Minister Shigeru Yoshida of um, uh, space exploration for peaceful purposes only. They put it in their constitution as well. Um, I think the Americans accepted that having Japan as an industrial power on their side in the Pacific was very much to their advantage. The minister responsible for science in the 1950s was Yasuhiro Nakasone, who people will remember that he became prime minister in the 1980s. And he developed the idea of what is some people call techno-nationalism, that you use technology to industrialize and modernize the country. And the Japanese developed a vision of modernization in the 50s, a bit like, um, for example, France. Uh, and there's a connection there because the Japanese invented the high-speed train. Hideo Shima did that. And indeed, it was a French visitor who saw the Japanese bullet train, the Shikansen, and said, let's try that in Europe as well. So that space exploration, space technology was seen at the forefront of the modernization of Japanese society, industry and technology in the 50s into the 60s. And it's, it's no accident that the names of Toshiba, Sanyo and so on uh, began to emerge at that point. It was very deliberate, uh, very organized. Right. So, um, so they going on from the German technology that they inherited, presumably that was pretty much put to bed by the um, by the Americans. How did the Japanese develop their um, their launch capability uh, and where did they focus that that appetite for for technological growth they started very very small their first rockets uh, were so small they were called the pencil because that's how big they <laughs> right. were right and this was hideo itokawa and he went around scavenging in the old factories and found solid fuel propellants which were essentially made of the same stuff as army bazookas 
nothing more than that. And he gradually made them uh, bigger and bigger. Um, they um, built a, a launch site, but the crowds grew so big, they had to keep on moving to places that were bigger and safer. Um, and in the mid-1950s, um, they began to build from this what were in effect sounding rockets. And Japan was one of only four countries to take part in the great international geophysical year, 1957 to uh, eight, which saw the Soviet Union launch Sputnik, America, its first satellites, and Japan launched sounding rockets, but not powerful enough to get into orbit. But Hideo Itokawa and his colleagues with these very small solid fuel rockets built a space industry from that, which culminated in them getting a very small satellite into orbit in uh, February of 1970, Japan being the fourth space power to get into, uh, into orbit after the Soviet Union, the United States and France. And they beat their Asian rival, China, by just uh, three months. Right. Well, OK. OK. Um, and that there was a desire to focus um, very much on earth based technologies and, uh, and focusing on the betterment of society. So using space technology um, to improve How, satellite technology, therefore, was probably the focus at that time. It was. In fact, Japan developed what you might really call two parallel space programs at the same time. Hideo Itokawa's small solid fuel rockets with scientific satellites, uh, one or two launched a year, very successful, but also a much larger space agency was also created, NASDA, uh, by Anzaku Sato, the prime minister, headed up by the railway man Hideo Shima. And their idea uh, was to build much larger liquid fuel rockets that would send communication satellites into orbit. And this they saw as the best way of uniting the Japanese archipelago, which is it's a very long island change through television and telecommunications. But they also saw it as the basis for developing a whole set of other industrial technologies. Weather satellites were another important part of what they were doing, because, again, if you're in Japan, you are yeah. under the threat of typhoons and so on. Uh, so it was seen as being for practical applications. And then, uh, as the rest of the world did, they got very much into Earth observations, something at which uh, the Japanese excelled to this present day. Yeah. Um, now, let me just go back, Brian, just um, that sort of, let's say, that Cold War window, um, because the Japanese, uh, the ja Japanese were under some pressure to use American hardware, um, certainly in those early years. And they did use American rockets, didn't they, in those early years? This was very controversial. Hideo Itokawa took the view that Japan should develop its own technology indigenously without any help from abroad. It was slower, tougher, but ultimately better. Um, the uh, Americans took strong objection to this view and took the view that it would be better for everyone if they sold Japan licensed technology. And the other part of the Japanese space program did import American licensed technology. But it caused a lot of tension because it included what are called black boxes, which are bits of rockets that the Japanese themselves were not even allowed to see. And if there were a problem, American engineers had to be called in to fix it. And it puts them in a rather 
subordinate position. And I think the Americans rather wanted to retain their hold on how Japan did its rocketry. The same was true of Europe as well. And because when in Europe, the French lost patience um, with uh, the very controlling American attitudes, they set up their own rocket. It's called the Ariane, and it's still flying to this very day. So it was not unique to Japan. There was a similar... American, European standoff at the same time as well. But Japan did, um, as you say, quite successfully develop its own series of domestic rockets with American help. And I I think there's a fair point here that they probably could not have done it faster uh, any other way. And the Japanese over time indigenized their rockets um, and made them um, ever more um, uh, efficient, uh, larger and successful. The one thing, though, that they were never good at was selling their rockets. They didn't commercialize them successfully. They were maddeningly expensive. And one of the reasons was the um, and the word fanatical has been applied to this, a fanatical emphasis on quality control. Yeah. And the Japanese set very high management standards and continue to do so to this day. And failures in the Japanese space program are, are, are unusual. Yeah. Um, And that's a cultural thing, really, because we saw that very much through the 60s, 70s, things like quality control, lean processes, all those things came out of um, the manufacturing and technology uh, sectors in Japan. And and I think one of the things you um, explore uh, in your latest book um, is how they they were focused very much on that. I was going to say perfect product but uh, on on a high quality product but it was very it was it was very cultural but they did have some failures didn't they not everything went according to plan how how does that how does that how did that affect their programs like all um space we've seen it in so many space stories you know your first rocket never succeeds on its first attempt there's always something of how did they how how was japan culturally with that process of improvement because obviously that you know they had some failures along the way they did have a couple of bad periods particularly in the 1990s and the outcome of that was that there was a radical reform was undertaken of their space program in around 2008 it was a much longer process than that um, by a, a minister by the name of Kawamura who was not well known outside Japan and one of the things he did was introduce new space He said that the Japanese space program had become far too dominated by what are sometimes called the big beasts of Japanese industry, um, like Mitsubishi, Ishikawa, heavy industries and so on. So he introduced uh, uh, a diversification, as it were, of manufacturing and the supply chain, uh, introducing a whole set of incentives to encourage new companies, innovators, startups to go right down uh, the supply chain, down to the tiniest little valve, uh, to try try get improvements, and they even designed a series of proving uh, rockets that would test these new technologies in orbit. Uh, Japan has also been very successful in developing microsatellites. Right, uh, yeah. Microsatellites. Um, I'm thinking of Shinichi Nakasuka um, and Mengu Cho and other great designers like that. They saw that this brought huge benefits in many ways because it involved 
young people, uh, university students in building, designing their own satellites, learning the hard way, learning by trying, learning by doing at low expense as well. Um, and Japan developed this facility on its module on the International Space Station called Kibo, called hmm. the dispenser. And what the dispenser does is it launches, it's a kind of tube, a pipe, and out of it, they launch uh, microsatellites. They launch, I think, 139 in five years. Sometimes they're launched at a time and they're called flocks of satellites. Um, so Japan has been quite innovative in that particular area. Um, their most, their their greatest successes, though, I I think, have been besides the piloted space space program in deep space exploration and going to the asteroids, where they have done things that no one else has done. Right, I want to come back to that. I'm very excited about uh, that element of their um, their evolution. I just wanted to ask a question about. Um, that sort of period post-war uh, and up to the turn of the centuries. Outside of the US, did they seek any other partnerships or, or joint ventures? And did anyone else um, seek partnerships with them? You know, obviously India, China, um, Europe were all pushing their own space programs at various stages. Was there any other partnerships open to them? I would say that 80 to 90 percent of Japan's external contacts have been with the United States. And that's no surprise, granted to the Americans its strategic location, um, granted the history of 1945 and so on. Um, the United States certainly sees, in its own words, Japan as its most important strategic ally, bar none, anywhere else in the world. And that's been said by American presidents, secretaries of state and so on. Japan has had dealings with Europe. That would be the number two partner, I would imagine. Japan has set up a regional cooperation forum uh, in the Pacific um, called APRASAF, um, which has 20 to 30 members um, and um, countries there. I'm thinking Vietnam. Uh, they cooperate with them. Japan provides technical assistance. And some of this is paid for through its development budget. Right. Um, However, the, the, the key question here, who's missing? And there's some very prominent people not there or countries not there. India, very little contact there, although Hideo Kawa uh, at one stage went to work for the Indian space program. Uh, China, almost none. And Russia, which is very proximate to Japan, let's remember the, the far east of Russia, almost no yeah. contact whatsoever. Um, and that that is an interesting contrast because Japan's maritime neighbor, the Republic of Korea, got the Russians to build their first rocket, the KSLV, which put their satellite into orbit and built the Republic of Korea's narrow launching site. Um, so um, if um, the Republic of Korea can do it. I, I would raise the question of why did why did Japan <laughs> not do it? So it is a yeah. very unidimensional, I think, uh, international relationship. And um, where were they? Uh, one of the things that uh, we haven't explored, and I know uh, in a previous show we talked about international launch sites. Where did they evolve their uh, their launch sites to over this time? Do they have a specific place? Have they got multiple launch sites? One launch site. What what do they do? Japan has two launch sites, and they are almost within sight of one another. Oh, okay. They're both at the very southern tip of the Japanese peninsula. Right. The first one was built by Hideo Itokawa's Institute of Space and Astronautical Science, and it's in a place called Uchinura, 
in Kagoshima at the very southern tip. And not far away is the NASDA, um, the other larger liquid fuel rocket uh, agency's um, launch site called Tanigashima. Uh, having, if you see the pictures of rockets taking off from there, you must say to yourself, these must be the most picturesque launch sites in the entire world uh, because they're on mountainsides overlooking the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and this indeed created its own local controversy. One of the biggest problems in the early days was fishing um, right. because fishermen uh, claimed um, that the rockets falling into the sea were disturbing the fish. But I think what was actually more to the point was that safety zones were declared in the launching areas. But the Fishermen's Union was very strong in Japan. Uh, but early on, it was able to negotiate systems whereby Japan only ever launched rockets in February or September. The right. problem was that the planets do not align themselves around the Japanese fishing seasons. So eventually agreements were worked out with the local fishermen. But it was it's strange to think that fishing became one of the most burning and controversial issues in the early Japanese space program. Yeah. And um, we mentioned NASDA earlier. When did JAXA come into uh, come into play? The um, Kawamura reforms and the other reforms that took place at around that time involved the merger of Hideo Itokawa's scientific solid fuel end of the Japanese space program, ISAS, and the main part, NASDA, which built the big rockets and the application satellites. Right. And that took place in 2003, and it was called JAXA, or Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency. However, and this is rather interesting, the ISAS part remains its own directorate within okay. JAXA. So space science remains very clearly defined. It is still possible, as it always was, to read about JAXA with hardly any reference to ISAS or vice versa. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, however, I, I, I'm told that professionally the colleagues there get on very well together. But it's, it's <laughs> a strange it's and Japan. unusual. <laughs> it's a strange and unusual. Indeed, they move between them, but it's a strange and unusual uh, institutional feature. ISAS, the Space Science End, does its annual report. Uh, which I think is as good an indication of the nature and extent of its independence as one can imagine. Did you know that during the Falklands War in 1982, there was a plan to put the Black Buck raids on steroids by sending an Avro Vulcan to bomb airfield targets on mainland Argentina, potentially returning to RAF Waddington the long way round via Chile, Easter Island, Tahiti, Hawaii, the USA and Canada? Did you also know that during the Second World War, a proposal was made to build B-29 superfortresses in the UK, powered by Bristol Centaurus engines? If your answers to the above are yes, you're probably a regular reader of the Aviation Historian, the quarterly journal, print and digital, that explores the less well-trodden paths of flying history. If your answers are no, visit theaviationhistorian.com and see what you're missing. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran from Plane Crazy Down Under. And you're listening to Extended.
Now, let's talk about um, uh, space science uh, and deep space. One of the things Japan has been particularly uh, successful at, given its, um, I was going to say isolation as a, as a single, uh, single source uh, launch organization, but the, the deep space program has been particularly impressive. You just have to say, I know we've, we've talked briefly about um, Lunar Lander, but they've been at this game for a long time, haven't they? Japan began its deep space program in 1985 when it sent two spacecraft into the tail of Halley's Comet. And Japan, Europe and the Soviet Union were the only countries that went to Halley's Comet that year. The United States didn't. Japan followed that by becoming the third country to reach the moon um, with uh, two spacecraft there in 1990 on the same mission, sending a spacecraft to Mars, although it was unsuccessful several years later, and also sending a space spacecraft Akasuki to Venus, uh, yes. around which it entered orbit on a cloud exploration mission, which everyone said, we, we know enough about that, thank you. But Japan has found out wonderful new science and knowledge about the clouds around Venus. But the most spectacular Japanese deep space missions have been to the asteroids. The first one, uh, was sent to, and um, this had is full of history because the spacecraft was sent to asteroid Itokawa, which was happened to be the asteroid named after the founder of the Japanese space program. Yeah. And the space probe itself was called Hayabusa, which means Falcon, which was the name of an aircraft designed by Hideo Itokawa during World War II. And this was a tiny spacecraft. It was only about, I think, four or five hundred kilos. Because it was going to be on a very long journey, it was one of the first to use electric propulsion uh, xenon engines, which fired on the first mission for no less than 31,000 hours. So wow. the thrust might not have been strong, but it was enough to get it to the asteroid belt, <laughs> at which stage things began to go badly wrong. Uh, in trying to land on the asteroid uh, and scoop up soil, contact was lost. Uh, it was then found out that th several of the reaction control wheels had failed, thrusters failed, communications became very, very intermittent. It took them five years to try, nurse is the only word, the Hayabusa spacecraft back to Earth, but they got it back to Earth after a mission of many, many years. It re-entered the atmosphere and no spacecraft had ever returned to Earth from an asteroid before over the desert of Western Australia. It landed, it was picked up fairly quickly and brought back to Japan. Millions of Japanese spent the night waiting up watching the telly to watch this return of this tiny, tiny cabin. You could, you yeah. could actually hold it up in your hands. It was that small. And did it have any asteroid samples in it? When they first looked, they said, oh, no, we didn't get anything. But they looked much more closely and applied a kind of mouth swab, I think, to see. And they found tiny, tiny particles. The largest one, I think, was 0.1 of a millimeter large. Wow. But wow. that was large enough if you put it under an yeah. electron microscope. Um, Hayabusa, the, the spacecraft, uh, became the inspiration for no less than four movies. 
which I would would strongly recommend to you because they tell in a very heartwarming way the story of this extraordinary little robotic uh, adventure. And indeed, um, there was huge enthusiasm for this mission. And there isn't a lot of enthusiasm for spaceflight in Japan. American astronauts who toured Japan uh, with Japanese astronauts were amazed to see their colleagues welcomed like film stars yeah. uh, by enthusiastic crowds, especially of young people. Japan then del- then followed that mission. And when they started the asteroid missions, they said, let's do something that NASA has never done. Uh, so that was part of the thinking of being different and being distinctive, and it paid off. Yeah. The second mission, Hayabusa 2, um, went to an, a different uh, asteroid, obviously. Ryugu was its name. Yeah. Um, and between the two asteroids, and it was also successful returning to Earth also in the Australian outback. Um, but I think it's fair to say that the two Japanese astronauts, asteroid, asteroid explorers, have enabled us to rewrite the history of the solar system. Because these, these asteroids came, at least Ryugu certainly did, from way outside the solar system, got kicked into it by solar dust clouds way outside the solar system, uh, had their orbit um, reshaped and redefined as it passed from Neptune and then toward Jupiter and then swung into a new orbit uh, around the sun. Ryugu was, is a strange place. Um, the material that holds it together is a bit like pumice stone, but it's so fragile that if Ryugu, which is nine kilometers across, ever hit Earth, it would actually disintegrate very, very quickly because the material, the stuff that is holding it together is so feeble um, uh, by way of, of um, structural strength. And also they found what is in effect organic material on board, indicating quite strongly that the possibility is that life on Earth actually reached us through asteroids and comets and deep space um, objects. So it has given new strength to what are called the panspermists, who believe that life has spread to th- through, th- through the universe and particularly the Earth from distant objects. So the Hayabusa missions, I think, would have, would have uh, uh, strengthened that hypothesis. Um, and, and Brian, just um, as we sort of run into the, the, the final piece of this, um, how how has Japan focused on human spaceflight? What's been their 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 focus there? In 1970, I remember reading an article saying that the next Asian country into space will be Japan. How wrong can you be? Um, <laughs> um, Japan has not yet launched its own astronauts. China became the leader instead in 2003, with India set to follow next year. However, um, Japan, as part of the American alliance, was invited to join post-Apollo, which is what the United States did after the moon landings. It built the shuttle and then what was intended to be called the Freedom Station that became the ISS. Japan did get to fly its first astronaut uh, on the space shuttle on a Japanese space laboratory called Space Lab J. But they were beaten to the post by the foreign news editor of the Tokyo Broadcasting Service, who had indeed been posted to Washington. He met President Reagan on at least one occasion. Uh, And he was offered a seat by the Russians on the Mir space station. So the first Japanese um, person in space, Toyohiro Akiyama, uh, was a journalist 
He was Japanese and he flew to Mir and he took some of the best film that has ever been taken in orbit and also brought experiments with frogs and how they live under weightlessness. Uh, so the first Japanese astronauts in the official program, as it were, got into space in the 1990s. Japan was invited by the Americans to join the International Space Station. And since then, Japanese astronauts have flown into, into the International Space Station on the shuttle until 2011, when the shuttle was retired, on the Soyuz from Russia until 2020. And they're now flying again um, on the um, Dragon spacecraft uh, at the moment. And yeah. there's um, a Japanese astronaut on board. Japan gets, in effect, every second six-month what's called rotation. So there's been a Japanese astronaut on board the International Space Station almost um half the total time that it's been there. Japan built three modules for the International Space Station. They're considered to be amongst the most productive scientific components of the space station. The Kibo module, an external porch, and an attic for storage up above. Um, and it's been a, another success story for Japan, which should pave the way for its involvement in the American Artemis Return to the Moon program, because the Japanese have now built up S uh, substantial on-orbit uh, experience, not through their own uh, rockets to get them into space. They did try to build a space plane that didn't work, um, but there nevertheless has been a strong Japanese presence in space since the 1990s, and the technical quality of the Japanese contribution has always been very highly praised by uh, their international partners. Yeah. Now, if that's not a flavour for um, your latest book, I don't know what is. There's an awful lot more that's, <laughs> that's in there. Um, Brian, where can we find out uh, a little bit more about your, your most recent publication? Yes, the, the new book is called um, Japan in Space, Past, Present and Future. And broadly speaking, it marks the 50th anniversary of Japan's first space mission in 1970, which gets you to 2020. So we're a little bit behind that. But what, what I've tried to do um, is to tell the story of Japan's space program, uh, its origins, its development over the main periods about which we've spoken, uh, how it compares to other countries in the world, how Japan has cooperated or in some cases not done so with other countries, an important shift that took place in the Japanese space program in the past 20 years, which is its shift to military satellites. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is, for those who I think support science in space, a disappointment uh, because it, me it means that with limited resources, uh, less and less has gone into the scientific programs. The SLIM mission that landed on the moon uh, last week was the first Japanese moon probe in 15 years. And this was a country that had led Asia to the moon. Uh, in the past uh, 15 years, Japan has instead launched 15 military, sorry, 27 military satellites, um, of which um, 15 or so have been for observation of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, and the others have been navigation satellites um, and uh, military communication satellites. So this has been a very sh big shift in the emphasis of the Japanese space program towards military purpose and towards military alliance with Japan setting up its own space force or space command um, 
that clearly is Japan's decision as a country, as a parliament, as a government. But it has meant that the space science side has suffered quite a lot from that. Application satellites are much fewer in number. Uh, deep space probes are, are, are much, much fewer. There's only one more uh, moon probe even uh, being discussed, and it's to be done as a joint mission with India. The problem is the Indians have not yet approved this mission. Japan, yeah. though, does have an ambitious mission to fly to the two moons of Mars, uh, Phobos and Deimos, in 2026, which a mission which is being done with Germany and with France, um, which is to land on the moon, the moon Phobos um, and return samples to Earth. And the main scientific purpose of that mission is to determine whether uh, Mars's moon Phobos was a captured asteroid, is a captured asteroid, or is the accretion material that was spewed up into orbit from a big meteorite or meteor crash onto the surface of Mars. So that's a very ambitious mission, but it's very much in line with the country that set the standard for that kind of mission with the um, Hayabusa missions earlier. I could listen to it all day, Brian. Um, thank you so much for uh, for joining us. We'll put links to the new book um, in the in in the show notes. Um, we'd like to thank White Hearts for our music and Mick Oakey at the Aviation Historian for his ongoing support. You can find me at Nascot Hornet on Twitter, and you can find Tim, Ellie, and Gareth on the extended Twitter, Facebook threads and instagram feeds that's it with the arrival of the music it's goodbye from brian goodbye and thank you for listening and it's goodbye from me peter johnson and remember stay tuned to this frequency that is of course aerospace radio station extended legal policy and use of our material can be found on our website please do ask before using anything you hear the programs produced with a creative commons license please leave us a review wherever you play your podcast it genuinely helps grow our program and broaden its reach you can also review the program and leave us feedback on our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to email us, our email address is getinvolved at aviationextended.co.uk. And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you... The Royal Aeronautical Society is the world's only professional body dedicated to the entire aerospace community. Established in 1866 to further the art, science and engineering of aeronautics, the Society has remained at the forefront of developments in aerospace. Visit www.aerosociety.com Extended! This is XTP Media.